Hello and welcome to another episode of the Wisdom of Friends podcast. Thank Thank you for tuning in. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. This is a podcast where you get to learn more about your friends and community, their wisdom, their trials and tribulations, timeless insights and their secrets. Now, let's get into the show. Please welcome your host, Cal Aras. Hello, folks. Uh, Welcome to Season 2 of Wisdom of Friends. And I'm really excited today to be introducing you to a dear friend of mine. His name is Brandon Hendrickson. Brandon teaches philosophy, biochemistry, ancient history, and cooking to little kids. He's also the SAT and ACT prep guru at The Learning Professionals. This fall, he's opening up a new kind of school for first, second, and third graders one that helps people fall in love with the world, master life, and build lives of purpose. His website is called schoolsforhumans.org. In this episode, we have a fascinating conversation about the future of education, the art of deliberate practice, and the road to mastery. I hope you enjoyed this episode. So without further ado, let's welcome the one and only... Brandon Hendrickson. Hello, uh, Brandon. Uh, welcome to another episode of uh, Wisdom of Friends show. I'm really excited that you took some time to be on the show. Let me start off my first impressions of you. This was almost uh, four months ago uh, when I attended the District 2 uh, Spring Conference at Toastmasters, and it was an honor for me to attend that because I got felicitated for a milestone I'd accomplished uh, of the Distinguished Toastmaster. But what really caught my fancy at that conference was not just getting the award, but having this incredible opportunity to attend a breakout session that you had led. It was about the art of deliberate practice. And what really stood out for me from that talk that you gave was how you tied it from uh, the research that Anders Ericsson had done back into how Toastmasters uh, conducts their meetings and how we can improve our leadership and communication skills. So uh, I thought uh, back then that, you, you know, you're a fascinating guy with uh, incredible talent. And then I did some research about uh, uh, the kind of projects that you're working on. And I knew back then that we'll definitely want to have you on the show. So again, thank you for taking the time to be on the show. Thank you so very much for having me here. Great. Uh, so one of the ways that we start off our show, Brandon, is that uh, we ask our guest a very simple question, and that is, what's your favorite code or philosophy that you mm. live by, and how have you applied it to your life? My favorite educational thinker is a guy named Kieran Egan. Uh, he works up in, uh, outside of Vancouver in British Columbia, and he has a quote in one of his books, In schools, we represent the world to children as mostly known and rather dull. But the opposite is the case. We are surrounded by mystery, and what we know is fascinating. And I think that stands in for so much of how I have been uh, lucky enough to engage the world. Everything, when you get through like the bitter, dull crust of it, is really, really interesting. And so... 
what I do when I embark on projects is f- force myself past the crust of it and uh, look at, at and, and fall a little bit in love with whatever it is that I have to, uh, whatever it is I have to teach or whatever it is I have to help other people understand. That is so great. And uh, uh, one of the questions that uh, I'm curious about, Brandon, is that you uh, have started this incredible project and it's called the Schools for Humans. And we're going to get into this in a little bit here. But what I'm what I'm really curious about really is your journey up until now. Like, uh, what did your parents do, and how did that shape your life? Yeah, my parents are both ministers. Uh, they've been pastors. They've been elders before, in various sort of conservative Protestant churches. Uh, they have devoted their lives to understanding how the world fits together from their lens um, and learning how to live good lives inside of it and then helping other people do the same. Uh, right now, they are uh, the heads of a ministry in one of America's most racially divided cities looking to bring uh, healing and racial reconciliation uh, among different racial groups there. Uh, so that sort of background really informed how I see the world and what I think that the purpose of life is, uh, what one can do with a life. Um, that's, that's my child. Actually, is there a follow up question to that? Yeah. I mean, uh, definitely. I mean, the, the question really is, I, what I want to get to is uh, how did you come about like thinking about this incredible project about the schools of humans? And so it seems like your parents influence, uh, definitely, uh, seems to have played a part yeah. as far as your thinking is concerned and the kind of, uh, projects that you want to, uh, you have taken on for yourself. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the uh, schools of for humans? Uh, so the I I went to college and probably made the mistake of taking whatever classes seemed shiniest at the time without any kind of larger pattern or plan for what it was that I would do with that. And I ended up sort of lucking my way into a degree in religious studies and to and, and a degree in history. And if anybody uh, in your audience has any idea what one can do with those two degrees, I would love to hear it from them. Uh, so I just sort of wandered around um, as an itinerant teacher for quite a few years, uh, teaching uh, test prep, teaching history classes, teaching world religions classes, philosophy classes, that sort of thing, moral economics classes, uh, with interested high schoolers, college students, grade school students, middle school students. And I cobbled together some realizations that there were basic holes in the way that we approach schooling and we approach education. Uh, schools basically fail at the task of helping most children achieve mastery in most topics. We sort of papered over uh, and then we sort of say, oh, maybe the majority of students can't learn to read very well. Or maybe the majority of students can't learn how to do math very well. But if you actually look at the science of it, that's not true. Um, so I discovered little things like that. Um, realized that uh, the thing that most students suffer from in school is a lack of purpose. It's a lack of a sense of meaning. Um, I frequently ask my high school students uh, what it is that's worse. Is it the amount of work that they do? Is that more stressful? Or is it the lack of a feeling of meaning behind the things that they do? And every single one of them so far, of the dozens or hundreds at this point that, that I've asked, uh, have said that the problem is a lack of meaning for it. So right, people don't oftentimes talk about these sorts of things. Uh, students don't fall in love with the things that they're doing. They don't become interested in them. Um, when you see interest in a student, it's in the, you know, one topic here or there for a few lucky students, you know, three or four topics that they actually have the opportunity to pursue their passions in, in school. When in fact, 
Everything is interesting. What we know is fascinating. Um, and uh, so realizing that these problems of mastery and of interest and of purpose uh, have not been solved by public schools or by private schools or by almost any kind of educational enterprise and realizing that uh, not only um, were they important to solve, but that people sort of working on their own idiosyncratic projects around the periphery of education have figured out how to solve one or another of those and realizing that you could bring those together, that it's possible to create an educational environment that basically succeeds at helping students develop mastery in things and develop interest in almost everything and develop a life of purpose. That is so fascinating. So uh, what I'm hearing you say is you encountered a failed education system in your own personal growth and development, and then you came about this idea that today's education system requires, there was a gap that you noticed, it's about like helping students find a purpose in life and that an ability to develop mastery. And I'm reading your uh, mission, or if you will, the vision of uh, schools of humans, and your quest is that you're a team of educators working together to really help uh, build a renaissance people. So. So this brings back a bunch of questions here. And one of the questions that comes to mind is, how did you conceive this idea, like from concept to launch? Was that, uh, did you have to take, get any special licenses or how did this, starting a school is not a, you know, it's not about going and picking up, uh, you know, groceries at the store. It's about really planning and thinking about how do you really embark on this big project? So tell us what that quest was like to start and launch the school. Uh, well, it's been very difficult, <laughs> uh, but it's also been a heck of a lot of fun, uh, because what, uh, it's strange actually how unregulated schools are in America. Really almost any Joe Blow can go and open a school. Uh, and we are, I need to say, not even like at the full Joe Blow school opening stage right now. And in, uh, this September, we will be, uh, opening our homeschool enrichment program uh, that will be sort of the the foreway into opening a fuller school when we, when we expand it out. Uh, but you know, I got went back to get a master's in education, which I think was almost entirely unuseful uh, for the project that I am actually embarked in. Uh, but went ahead and did that, um, and have been teaching these small classes mostly out of our apartment, um, uh, where we teach kids, really little kids, biochemistry and evolutionary biology and chemistry and physics and ancient history and philosophical debates uh, and cooking. Uh, we actually have them cook things every week, too. Uh, so I guess taking on these small educational projects and then sort of weaving them, rolling them together into something bigger is the theory that we've been working on for this. That is really excellent. And that you also have the so when I look at your uh, school system, it's essentially you're developing young philosophers in Leonardo, which is the other component mm -hmm. of it. And it's really about helping kids fall in love with uh, math and drawing and reading and cooking and storytelling. And then uh, philosophers is about biochemistry and ancient history and critical thinking. And that's such an awesome uh, uh, concept and idea. So... A question that also comes to mind is, uh, when you look back at your life up until now, what would you say were some of the turning points in your life? Oh, sorry, that was the, that was, that was the uh, end of the question. Uh, I would say that one of the biggest ones, and I hope this isn't too personal for the uh, for the podcast, 
um, is that when I was in college and I was pursuing my religious studies degree, I, uh, I came in as somebody looking uh, to become a theologian and perhaps a pastor um, as a committed Christian. And in college, I lost my faith. I became convinced that the things that I had gone into it um, uh, to pursue, that they weren't true, which I don't know if you've ever lost your faith before, but I don't recommend it as a weekend project. Uh, <laughs> it's painful and it's bitter and it's difficult. And in order to really uh, not just get over it, but to have grown from the experience, you need to come up with a, um, for the, you know, for you, a compelling new way of seeing life, the universe and everything, uh, which is a heck of a reading project to embark on. And so, you know, for the few three or four, maybe 12 years after that, um, my quest was to make sense of how the world knits itself together and how, like, my parents work on uh, how one can live very well inside of that. Uh, so that I think would be the most difficult thing that I've experienced in my life. Yeah. And uh, I can, I can relate to that because early on in my life and career, um, I did uh, explore a lot of uh, religious uh, uh, texts and yeah. that was something that I was fascinated by. And it was just for, to acquire more knowledge and try to be more yeah. globally oriented about different uh, ways of uh, thinking and yeah. beliefs and cultures. And it was more of a fascination than uh, rather than losing faith for me. Yeah. Uh, but but I can see uh, where you're going with that. And um, so when I so going back to your childhood days, uh, did you have any mentors that you idolized, or uh, whom did you huh. fa whom did you find fascinating, and were there anybody that you wanted to emulate? I suppose there were a lot of people. I was very lucky to be connected to a bunch of really fantastic people uh, who I tried to emulate, who I still try to emulate. My father's, I, I think, my exemplar of what it means to be a mature uh, man mm. in, in a 21st century society, and I still try to live, live up to his example. Um, uh, there is a paleontologist, uh, dinosaur hunter, uh, that I've never had the pleasure of meeting, uh, named Robert Backer. He has famed for this big, long, sort of Rasputin-like beard. And it was him and a few other people who, in the 1970s, kicked off what we now call the dinosaur renaissance, which was when all of the ideas that were finally enshrined in, in the movie and book Jurassic Park, um, when they really came into their own. Um, uh, and it was Backer who helped transform our image of dinosaurs as these, as these sluggish lizard-like dull-colored drab-seeming lizards uh, into these hot-blooded, fast-moving, really interesting animals, full animals in their own right. So the idea for me... That one person, and really more than him, uh, but he seemed from my childhood vantage point to lead it from that one uh, person could lead this revolution and how everyone in a society saw something really fundamental like dinosaurs or like, later uh, like education um, uh, stuck with me, amazed me. And it's been something that I've been, yeah, I guess a project that I've been interested in taking on since then. Yes. And uh, the other thing also, I want to touch upon a little bit of uh, the art of deliberate practice. I know that's a topic yeah. that you're uh, you're really fascinated about and you have really started a movement of some kind within the Toastmasters community here in Seattle because everybody references uh, improvements with the potential opportunities with their clubs mm -hmm. and using your 
uh, workshop that you had conducted at the conference. And so why don't you tell us about what was your uh, takeaway from reading that book yeah. and how do you think that we could apply it not only just to our Toastmasters communication skills, but different domains of life, yeah. right? So why don't you uh, tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. So um, the assumption in the 19th, the assumption in the, in the late 1800s as to where ridiculous levels of talent came from was that, oh, people must be born with it. And and where it turned after that was, oh, it must be that people who are ridiculously talented have put in tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of work. And we've all heard about the 10,000-hour rule before. Uh, that was Erickson's belief. Uh, Anders Erickson, the, uh, the Swedish-born researcher, that was his uh, assumption, I think, when he went into his research. And in fact, it was his research that led to the dubiously named 10,000-hour rule and what he found was that that is totally bunk, that it's not uh, just throwing in tons of hours to something that makes you so good at it, but it's the specific type of practice that a person does that makes them so good at something. So there are lots of doctors who are out there, he has found, who have been working in their field, who are caring, who are wonderful doctors, who are worse than they were when they left medical school. Uh, even though they've had so much practice to put into it. That it's not just practice that makes the difference. It's a certain type of practice. And what that certain type of practice requires are things like the ability to get immediate feedback on how well you did with something. Like the ability to break down a skill into its subcomponents and hone each and every one of those things until you can put them back together into the larger, um, into the larger skill. And in Toastmasters, I think a lot of the strengths of Toastmasters is that something like that is actually baked deeply into the DNA of what we do and who we are. We seek out feedback. We identify the subcomponents of public speaking and try to get better at those. And I think the weaknesses, if I can speak openly about the weaknesses of Toastmasters, is that we don't do as much of that as we could. It took me years of people telling me that I used too big of words in my speeches uh, to really take that seriously. And now I am, and I'm, I don't know, I'm getting a little bit better at it. But I'm exploring right now ways that we can make, that we can get and see the same improvement that would ordinarily take us months or years and see that same kind of improvement in a single speech. Yes, and I, I think... Uh... This is really something that uh, you have some good insights about that because, uh, you know, just kind of like uh, recapping the summary of the art of deliberate practices, it's identifying an area of our life. Now, it could be communication, leadership, or any domain that, you know, we are passionate about and want to kind of improve on. The key principle here is to identify an area that is, uh, that stretches you outside your comfort zone at the same time getting a mentor or some expert feedback that gives you immediate feedback that you can start working on it and they evaluate your progress and then, then you can kind of start over all over again. So it's a rinse and repeat process. Yeah. And with that concept, you can make significant progress in that chosen area. Now with Toastmasters, what Brandon, you're suggesting is that with the evaluation that happens when you give a speech, uh, oftentimes you don't give that same speech uh, probably until next week or maybe yeah. in a couple of months. And so the feedback that you've gotten may not be uh, applied immediately. Yeah. But what you're suggesting is 
if they break down their speech into smaller chunks yeah. and you give uh, you know your introduction let's say and somebody evaluates you right away and tells you exactly what you need to work on then you go back and work on it and then come back and give your introduction all over again now you made significant progress with your delivery yeah. and the feedback that you've gotten is that more Yeah, accurate? one of the things that I'm really excited to be trying this is the sort of thing that maybe sounds interesting in theory and will totally blow up in my face when we try when we give it some significant uh, iterations uh is to do what we're calling a microburst where I give just a 60 second talk and then immediately after that when my one of my evaluators stands up and gives me just 30 seconds of feedback telling me how to do one specific thing differently and then immediately they sit down and I stand back up and I give my one minute talk again incorporating exactly what they said and now maybe what they said was a bad idea and it was a fantastic idea but I try it out and then after the 60 seconds are up I sit down another evaluator pops up and gives me more specific feedback on that same topic on that same sort of a same sort of a, a piece of the of the talk and then I try it a third time in a row and we actually maybe repeat that a few more times and you could fit inside of a 5 to 7 minute speech maybe three or four iterations of this no i think uh, it's uh, definitely an uh, interesting take on uh, making progress and certainly as you said you know we it's we got to try it out and get some feedback and see how it works uh, but I'm definitely fascinated by this uh, insight that you're offering. Uh, moving on to uh, hobbies and interests. Huh. Uh, <laughs> so I know you are uh, you you like reading a lot of books, and uh, you are definitely a part of a lot of creative projects. So what else do you like to do as far as uh, hobbies and interests are concerned? I actually don't think that I have any hobbies. I uh, I really devote myself uh, to my work because I'm obsessed by this my by my work. I uh, I'm never happier than when I'm teaching, so I just find a bunch of oddball situations to teach in. Uh beyond the teaching and beyond the reading, uh, I tend to write a lot, just sort of jittering down ideas that I have into my into my commonplace book. When I'm not doing any of those things, I really enjoy talking through with people whatever projects they're working on, hearing their troubles, hearing their ideas, hearing what they've tried, hearing what they haven't tried but have thought of, and then uh, perhaps offering some ideas of my own to that. But just helping them through that process of working through their own challenges is a blast for me. That's great. And I, if I understand correctly, you're also leading a book uh, club kind of a forum uh, every week. Is that uh, something that you can share about? Uh, yeah. Uh, the Toastmasters one, do you mean? Yes. We're doing one that's not weekly, but quarterly. Uh, mm-hmm. So we just did one on the book Peak by Anders Ericsson a couple weeks ago. And our next one is a book, or we're reading part of a book titled Nerve, which is about uh, fear, which is about horror, which is about why we get so terrified of specific things that we do with an eye toward talking about how we can um, how we can not, of course, I'm always nervous in talking to a Toastmasters audience that I'm saying the word um too much, uh, that how we can not be as horrified as we sometimes are when we do public speaking. Of course, being in Toastmasters, I've given how many speeches? I don't even know at this point. And I th- had thought that I'd gotten past being terrified on stage until I did a TEDx talk a couple months ago, and my goodness, I was so nervous the night before that I thought I was going to have to call in sick toward it. 
And I vowed that I would never be that scared again of stepping in front of a stage. And so I'm really interested to see whether I can actually ensure that or not. Got it. So that brings up another question, and I am curious about from your extensive reading and uh, having indulged in all these creative projects, and what's your definition of success, and how would you define greatness? I think that it's very healthy. I come from the Midwest. I come from Wisconsin, so take whatever kind of stereotypes that you have about people from Wisconsin and go ahead and paste them on me. They typically, I, I find, uh, <laughs> I paste rather well. Uh, I find it very useful to have a very low bar for success. Doing a job pretty well that is not harmful to people and that is most of the time somewhat enjoyable for myself, that that is my definition of success. Raising kid, kids who are, you know, not sociopathic murderers, right? Like that's, that's a fairly okay definition of success in my <laughs> book. And I seem to be meeting all of that. Although my son is only seven years old, my daughter only four. So, you know, we'll see what the future brings with that. Uh, my definition of greatness, I don't, I don't know that I actually have a well enough work, a well worked out picture of greatness, at least as well as I ought to have by this point. Um, I mean, something like that the things that a person does will ripple beyond them and will keep rippling for a good long while and that those ripples will be helpful for people and other living things rather than mostly hurtful for them would be something like my definition of greatness. But that is as so vague as to be unuseful. No, I think uh, I think you made a good point there. As far as success is concerned, what I'm hearing you say is, uh, it reflects your Midwestern values of uh, living a, you know, a good life and uh, raising kids with uh, good values. And greatness is about leaving a trail behind that benefits others. And it's kind of like makes a difference for the society at large. So no, that's, uh, that's really awesome. I think the, the particularly mis- Midwestern part about that is that it's, it attempts to be a very humble definition of those things, or at least of, of what it means to succeed. Uh, I get worried sometimes with this sort of, uh, Western Washington, uh, West Coast cultural definitions or assumptions about happiness in life, that it should be moving from one ecstasy to a greater ecstasy to a still greater ecstasy. My goodness, but that sounds tiring. And that sounds like the sort of expectation that is going to set somebody up to be very unhappy when, or whenever they uh, they fail at meeting those things. Yeah, I think uh, you, you bring up an interesting point because success is something that cannot be tied to materialistic gains or pleasures because, uh, as we know, the people with the, all the toys, if you will, uh, are not necessarily happy. So chasing success uh, is, uh, like chasing happiness and you can yeah. never really acquire that. I think being content with what you have and living a good life. And, uh, I think in uh, gathering memorable, magical experiences and creating wonderful memories along the way, I think that could be a good st- uh, definition of success. No, I, I totally agree that. And having lived in the Midwest and I know oh. I've lived in Michigan for f- yeah. four or five years. So I went to school there at, uh, Andrews University in Michigan and yeah. University of Notre Dame and, Indiana, and uh, I also lived in Cleveland, Ohio, before I moved up to, to the West Coast. So uh, I'm very familiar with the Midwestern uh, way of life. Yeah. So 
And of course, you got Green Bay uh, Packers in <laughs> Wisconsin. Do you see that same sort of divide that people in the Midwest are more content with with small things, with smaller goals, and people on the uh, on the West Coast are never content, are specifically, in fact, sort of pride themselves in their discontentedness? Well, the way I would like to answer that is my experience of having lived in the Midwest has been that people are just very humble and they work hard. It's a tremendous work ethic. And I believe it comes from the Protestant uh, work ethic uh, that, you know, uh, United States is kind of known for and like hardworking and really uh, raising uh, families with good values. And Mm -hmm. that's something that, uh, I've experienced it and I've been really uh, delighted to have met some wonderful people that whom I still call friends uh, back in Michigan and yeah. uh, in my school days. So, yeah, so that's uh, that's a really good question. Um, so moving on to the next section of our Wisdom of Friends uh, show is uh, the questions that we get from our audience. Ooh. And... Uh, one of the questions we have for you, Brandon, is what stops, in your opinion, what stops people from achieving their fullest potential? Oh, I mean, there's so many things, right? I might say that one of the greatest things that stops people from achieving their full potential is understanding how the pieces of the universe sort of weave themselves together. It's so easy to get a simple idea about how the universe works in stuck inside of our heads. And we see everything through that different, that ideology, that vantage points. And then we are confused when we are doing what we've been told is the right thing, but it is not achieving uh, the results that we expect it to get. This is one of, I think, my greatest worries about America at the spot that we are right now is that everybody seems to have these very specific worldviews inside of their heads. And they, uh, and we say we, and we can't see outside of them. And they're stopping us. They're limiting us. One of the metaphors that I give my, uh, my political ideologies and my worldview students is that every idea that you ever take inside, take into your head is an octopus. It's an octopus that lives inside of your brain and it grabs the controls and it forces you to look where it wants you to look and to say what it wants you to say and to hear what it wants you to hear. And the octopus's goal is to go to war with the other octopuses inside of other people's heads. And there's no easy way out of this. Ideas influence who we are. Ideas uh, change what we see. And we and the only real hope is to get enough different kinds of octopuses in there to get this whole ecosystem of very diverse octopuses in that will help us actually be able to navigate the world because the small little bit of free will that we seem to have is enough maybe to say, well, I think this gang of octopuses wants me to do this sort of thing. But it really seems to me that this other gang of quieter octopuses might be the, the gang of octopuses to give the controls to right now. And so that actually comes into part of what my goal is as a parent and as a teacher and as a human being is to help people get more viewpoints into their heads so they're less limited by the views that they have and love. I, I like that. And I think... Uh you know, it's, I think, uh, it's important that although we may have different point of views, that one, uh, establishes a sense of respect for a differing point of view and, you know, being able to 
uh, agree to disagree respectfully. I yeah. think that's where the concept comes comes from. And also the fact that I think it was a quote by Aristotle. I think he said it beautifully. It's that it's a mark of an intelligent man to be able to hold two differing point of views without necessarily agreeing with one of them. Yeah. It's the ability to even consider it uh, with a neutral point of view. I think yeah. that's uh, that's such an important skill in today's day and age. I totally agree with that. Uh, the next question. Can I actually just jump on? Yeah, absolutely. Yes, please. Uh, one of the one of the side projects that uh, I and a friend are involved in right now is we are trying to host conversations about hot button political issues between people who can't possibly agree with one another. And we're doing that by turning it into a game, by asking more of the participants than they otherwise would be willing to give just in a regular political conversation. Uh, and we do this, I won't go into the details of it, but we uh, usually have it over the phone and we'll pick a topic and one person will get a full minute to express their views on that topic uninterrupted. And then the other person's job is immediately afterwards to distill what the first person said in just one sentence and to perfectly encapsulate it and give it back to the first person so that the person, first person goes, yes, that is precisely what I meant. And then once they can do that, it goes and flips and the other person does it. And then they get to have a conversation about what they agree about and what they disagree about. What we've been, what we've been finding is that when you can do it like this and actually get both sides to have to listen to and try to understand the other, you can, you can steer into the disagreements. You can keep looking for the things that make them angry about what they think the other person believes because they can have this trust and this respect that they are going to be listened to and understood, even if not agreed to. That is such a fantastic uh, project. Uh, I wish you all the success with it because I think it will definitely open minds uh, uh, within the community of people who actually engage in these kind of projects. Uh, the other question that I have for you is, I know you are a voracious book uh, reader, and uh, so what is uh, the best book you've read or gifted or re-gifted it to uh, oh, uh, people in your life? I am... Um I don't know if there's any particular book that wins that. There's maybe like 12 or a, uh, or, or two dozen books that might tie for that. Is it okay if I just rattle off a couple of Yeah, sure, like absolutely. Books? And we'll include that in the show notes. Sure, sure. And, and, and for specific people. So if what you are challenged by is the question of how can somebody live a really good life? How can you live a really good life? Um, the best book for my money on that uh, is the book, uh, The Happiness Hypothesis by a guy named Jonathan Haidt. Uh, really goes into tons of different religions and philosophies answers to that question and then how those things fit with modern science, which is to say, intriguingly, they fit with it. Uh, of course, if what you're looking for is an understanding of how you can become really, really good at something, the book on that is Peak by Anders Ericsson. Uh, if you are forlorn about the future history of the world and where our societies are heading, the best thing uh, the, to make you both more scared than you were before, but also more optimistic and hopeful than, than you were before is probably Rama's Nam's book, The Infinite Resource, The Power of Ideas on a Finite Planet. I've read that book probably four or five times now. I've read all these books probably like five or six times now at least. Um, if you know a young person who is trying to figure out how to plot the story of their life in order to get work that they really love, uh, the best book on that is Cal Newport's So Good They Can't Ignore You. Oh, I love that book. It's so, such a great book. It is. Probably yes. five or six copies of it for 
strangers, for friends, for baristas that I meet sometimes. Uh, utterly fantastic book. I'm about to give it another read, actually. I've been thinking about making that part of the Toastmasters book discussion. Club. Yeah, and I think yeah, he talks about deep work uh, in that book. His book, Deep Work, has been one of the biggest influences on my life in the last couple years. Uh, just the idea of putting into my calendar one sac- sacrosanct hour where I do nothing except work on a single project uh, has been a, a major turning point in my life, which isn't to say that I do it every day. Like I want to be able to, uh, and maybe finally, if what you want to do is get an understanding of the beautiful new revolutions that have happened in psychology and sociology, uh, David Brooks is, uh, his novel that kind of a poorly written novel and really great, really written nonfiction book, the social animal, um, uh, is, is the book to come to terms with the new movements in psychology. That's great. Uh, we'll include all of that in our show notes uh, for the benefit of the audience. Uh, one question uh, before we jump on to our next section, which is the rapid fire round is, mm-hmm. and this is like uh, the question about, uh, t- you know, it's a hypothetical and it's basically, let's say we have a time machine, uh, Brandon, and if you could go back in time and talk to your young self, your 18-year-old self or a 20-year-old young self, what advice would you give him? I assume this is after I've already gone back in time to kill Hitler, right? <laughs> First you kill Hitler and then you go back and give advice to your 20-year-old self. Uh, the thing that – sorry, if you're a pacifist and that was offensive <laughs> to you, I apologize profusely. Uh, I actually work with a lot of 20-year-olds uh, and so I get the opportunity to uh, uh, give them any advice that they are looking for. I don't, I, I'm embarrassed, I, I say that because I'm embarrassed to, to, at how specific to myself this particular advice would be. And for me, it would be take biology classes. Mm. When I was in high school and college, I took as few math and, and science classes I, as I could possibly take. And it was only on my wife and I's uh, uh, honeymoon that I really fell in love with science, which is a weird thing to discover on a honeymoon, I think. Uh, I came across this book titled The Canon, a whirly gig tour through the beautiful basics of science. And that what made, that's what made me realize that I love science. So I would go back and tell myself to take lots of science classes because it's embarrassing that I don't know the, how the periodic table works at this point in my life. I teach science classes to kids for heaven's sakes, but it takes so much more work to make sure that I'm getting the science right than it would have if I had just taken a danged biology class in college. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I yes, that's an interesting share. Thank you for sharing that. So that reminds us to kind of go back and uh, study some of the subjects that we were fascinated by and didn't get an opportunity yeah. to indulge in at that time uh, for whatever reasons could be. So moving on, uh, Brandon, to our next section. This is the rapid fire round section, and this is where I ask you a handful of questions, and it's the first response that comes to your mind. All right. And uh, if you certainly, if you want to elaborate on it, feel free to do so. But again, this is the rapid fire round. So, Brandon, are you ready? Uh, Can I pass on any of them if I don't know the answers? Absolutely. (laughs) So the first question that I have for you is, if you could be successful in another profession, which would you choose? I can't imagine not being a teacher. And so I suspect that I would just be a teacher in whatever profession that I had chosen. But if I had to like really be booted out of teaching entirely, I suppose being a pastor or something like that, being able to give really specific help to individuals would be a wonderful thing to do. 
The next question is, uh, what is the greatest work of art in your opinion? Uh, definitely the rap musical Hamilton. Just this thick tapestry of joy and sorrow that makes me happy to be living in the 21st century. I've yet to watch that, but I've so heard some amazing good. reviews about it. Uh, the next question is, if you could have witnessed one event in history, what would that be? I did my undergraduate thesis on historical Jesus studies. Uh, this was during, I started it when I was still a religious believer and I ended it when I was not. But I would be fascinated at the, um, at the end of a 142 page written paper to figure, to go back in time and see how, how well did I, how well did I figure it out? Uh, how, how, you know, how correct I was, was I on that? And also, I suppose, just the, the historical, um, Gautama Buddha, uh, to see what the actual Buddha's teachings were like and what he was like in person. Maybe Confucius too. There's a teacher who, it's a teacher whose plan is to save the world. I'd love to, I'd love to actually meet Confucius. That's great. And one of my favorites, uh, talking about Eastern uh, philosophers and, uh, is Lao Tzu with his uh, Taoist philosophy that the Tao Te Ching, I don't know if you've had a chance oh, yeah. of it. It's, keep, uh, it's an amazing so. book and it's something that, uh, I try to read it as often as I can. Huh. Huh. Uh, one other question for you is the single most valuable thing you've learned in life. My weakness is that I always steer toward heady answers to simple questions. So I'll play against type here and say, taking a damned nap. Naps are magical. I, I don't know. I don't know if people in your audience take naps, but my goodness, they're fantastic. Winston Churchill, uh, it said, uh, could get as much done as an ordinary person in the morning. And then again, as much as an ordinary person in the afternoon because he took a, a nap halfway through the day. When London was being bombed, he just would take a nap in the middle of the day. He had a cot put into a small closet in the House of Commons so he could take a nap when he was, when he was there too. Uh, and so the, I, I, I've been taking them, haven't been as uh, rigorous at that as I would, as would benefit me. But when I'm able to take a nap, which is maybe one out of every three days now, oh my goodness, am I happy after that? That is so great. And, uh, you know, I was in Spain earlier this summer huh. and, uh, one of the practices uh, you find in Spain is the taking the siesta. Yeah. And that's uh, such invigor invigorating, uh, aspect of living in Europe. It's like you really find that you're more creative and, uh, you know, you can think, uh, you know, you're refreshed and you can think uh, sharply after getting a nap. So one of the most disturbing aspects, uh, of working with high schoolers is hearing them uh, talk about, sometimes brag about, sometimes mourn about how little sleep they get. And when you look at the uh, the terrifying spike in anxiety rates and depression rates in young adults in the last couple of decades, uh, I, I, I wonder how much of that is just due to the fact that we have shaped for them a society where they are encouraged to not get very much sleep. I completely agree. And then uh, as far as uh, the last question is concerned here, uh, it is if you could have any message of your choice on a billboard, what would that be? And here I'm embarrassed because I should have some brilliant answer for that, but I, 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 I think that I would go with something like 
have you helped somebody out today to, to focus it just on the unbelievably specific to encourage people to do practical good among the people that they know or, or among people that they, they don't know uh, to, to help them out. That is so great. I mean, I think what you're referring to is the kindness aspect and really service. And that's that's so great. Moving on to our final section of our... Uh, Wait, I thought that was the final section. Oh, there's a, there's a, <laughs> a sub-basement of this building. This is very exciting. <laughs> so we're moving on to our final section. And this is... Uh, uh, the one question that I have for you is, what is your current personal passion project? Oh. And what are you looking forward to in the next 6 to 12 months? So the goal of my life is to help create a better, fuller, bigger, richer vision of what schools can be. And my wife and I have been working on projects to sort of spool this up for more than the last decade. And in a few weeks, I guess in about a month, we are starting our project Leonardo, which will eventually, hopefully, fingers crossed, turned into the Leonardo School, uh, which will be a basically new kind of school uh, that pulls from a lot of the most exciting ideas that people have had in education before, but puts them together, which means in this new exciting context where everything looks uh, more vivid and more wonderful, the goals of which are to help all students fall in love with almost every topic, which has been done before. I've been to a school, one specific school where I've seen that done, um, to help all of the students uh, develop mastery in uh, various levels, but but real thick, wonderful, exciting mastery in almost every subject, which has been done in a host of different places in the specific subjects, but have never been brought together before. And then if we can have the uh, the interest in the students and have students who just crave learning more and doing better, and if we have the mastery, we, we get students hooked on the idea of just becoming better and better and better at these things that they love, then putting them together in the broader context of purpose, of helping students craft for themselves lives of purpose where they're exploring what is meaningful to them and what is helpful to other people. That is excellent. And uh, how can people reach you, Brandon? Uh, I am most easily reachable via my email address, which is just brandon.hendrickson at gmail.com. And the spelling, I'm sure, can be found on the notes, the notes page of this. And the uh, and our, our website is schoolsforhumans.org, um, where we talk about young philosophers, which is our once-a-week science, philosophy, history uh, program for little kids, and then uh, also Leonardo, the um, the bigger uh, project that we were embarked upon. Excellent. Uh, and we'll include all those links in our show notes for the audience uh, so they can get in touch with you. The next question is uh, three things you're grateful for in life today. I'm grateful for so many things. I am grateful that I lucked into marrying a person who I am not really worthy of. I think I'm barely worthy of her, but she's definitely at the top end of people that I would be worthy for. My best friend nearly snapped her up. My she and I, my wife and I were reflecting on this last night. I very nearly missed marrying her. My best friend nearly got her. We had somehow never put that together before. So that I'm very thankful for that. Mm. Uh, I have children who are full of love and full of a lot of other things too, but also full of love, and I'm very happy for that. I am lucky enough to live in a corner of the world that is not beset by very much in the way of violence or, or, or famine or war. Uh, and I can take a lot of thing, a lot of stability for granted. 
and I am surrounded by uh, books that I love. I am able through uh, through books and through blogs uh, to engage with the best thinking of the of history's best thinkers on a daily basis. And my goodness, what what more could one want? Maybe some really good food. I, mean, I get we live in a, a pretty good foodie capital of the world too. I eat pretty well as well. Yeah, that that, that is beautiful and uh, nicely shared. And I just want to acknowledge you, Brandon, for really. Uh, being showing us that just reading books and acquiring knowledge is one thing, but how do you take all that information and really being practical and and utilizing those concepts for the greater good of society? I think what you're doing with your school, uh, with you and your wife, is so uplifting and so inspiring that you're going to shape uh, the young children's minds uh, to create a better world into the future and really help them become global citizens. And so I really want to thank you for that and uh, being so enthusiastic and uh, full of joy and energy about life, which is contagious. So again, uh, thank you for taking the time uh, to be on the show. And when we end this uh, interview with one final question... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> for those of you re- listening at home i believe this is the fourth final question <laughs> and that is why do you think people should listen to the wisdom of friends i think that we should listen to the wisdom of our friends and of our enemies and to everyone as much as we possibly can any podcast that makes that easier to do that helps us get through the crust of each other and getting to the things that really matters uh, is is a blessing. And thank you for it. Thank you, uh, Brandon. And uh, for those of us listening, uh, with that, we'll wrap it up. And if you like what you heard, please share. Don't be shy. Thanks for listening to the Wisdom of Friends show with Cal Aras. If you like what you just heard, we hope you'll pass along our web address, theglobalcontribution.com. To your friends and colleagues, be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous episodes. This has been a Seven Symphonies production. Join us next time for another edition of the Wisdom of Friends.